0: I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close, but not too close, reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities. And we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash sound. Today I'm in Philadelphia, a few blocks from the Kelly Writer's House, aforementioned. mentioned, joined here through the quasi-magic of Zoom by Maria Damon, critic, teacher, and poet, text, textile artist, and contributor to the Digital Poetics Movement, whose Books include Post-Literary America, from Bagel Shop Jazz to Micro Poetries, Poetry and Cultural Studies of Reader, which she co-authored with Ira Livingston, and The Dark End of the Street: Margins in American Vanguard Poetry, and who has published chapbooks of textile visual poems, among them Meshwords, and XXX. And by Christopher Stackhouse, whose work includes stage acting, music recording, painting and drawing, poetry, critical writing and performance events whose books include Plural, Seismosis, with John Keene, and Slip, whose essay Basquiat and Xerox Art in context appeared in 2019, and who is a contributor writer for the monograph, The Wayland-Rudd Collection, Ugly Duckling Press 2020, offering a meditation on the African-American Soviet Union expat actor, Wayland, and whose, Wayland-Rudd that is, and whose poetry essays interviews exhibition and book reviews have been published widely in literary journals and art periodicals including Hambone, the Volta, Reverie, Midwest African American Literature, Art in America, The Brooklyn Rail, and many, many more. And by Devorah Major, poet, writer of fiction and speculative fiction, who served as San Francisco's third poet laureate, 2002 to 2006, whose seventh book of poetry, Khalifa's Daughter, was published by Willow Press in July of 2020, His other book's of poetry include And Then We Became, With More Than Tongue, Where River Meets Ocean, Street Smarts, and others whose novels are Brown Glass Windows and an Open Weave, the latter the winner of an ALA Black Caucus First Novel Award, whose re- yeah, whose recent work includes a one-woman poetry performance piece with the working title of Mother's Howl, a new book of poetry called Love in the Hunting Season and a biography memoir of her father, Reginald Major, tentatively titled, A Black Cat. Devorah, I'm breathless <laughs> with all the stuff you've been doing. Hello and welcome to, uh, to Poem Talk, hi.
1: Thank you, thank you, nice to be here.
0: Yeah, this is your first time on Poem Talk, and Chris, same with you, first time on Poem Talk, and I'm sorry to both of you, it's t- taken this long. How are you? Sure,
2: sure.
0: Great, good to see you, and Maria? Good to see you as always. Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about a poem by Bob Kaufman, uh, a poem titled Suicide. The text of the poem is most readily available in the Golden Sardine section of Collected Poems of Bob Kaufman published by City Lights in 2019 on page 112. The audio recording we'll hear is from a film clip of Kaufman performing the poem Outdoors. And the place to see this video is near the end of Billy Woodbury's remarkable documentary film about the life and work of Kaufman titled, the film is, and I die, sorry, and when I die, I won't stay dead. So here now is Bob Kaufman in that clip reciting suicide. Suicide,
2: six men is minutes you. deal. All that's left is the largest colony of the new world. Who could have guessed it? No one in his right mind. Poets don't sneak into zoos and talk with tigers anymore, even though they read Blake and startle all by striped devices. While those poems of God point lurking in sun-dried, torn tree, jung- tree jungles, William Blake never saw a tiger and never crossed the land. he get off that main Street forever. The first man was an idealist, but he died. He couldn't survive the first truth, discovering that the whole world, all of it was his. He sat down and with a little piece of string and a sharp stone, invented suicide. It's a little hard to hear Kaufman.
0: And if you watch the film, it's a marvelous scene where he is, well, he's kind of Stroman himself. Um, he's wandering around. It looks like a park in San Francisco. and But the audio is hard to capture. So... Um, I've asked Devorah if she would be willing to read the poem. So we have two audio versions of it uh, for our discussion. Devorah, thank you in advance for doing that.
1: Suicide. Big fanny and strum and bin deal. All that's left of the largest colony of the new world. Who would have guessed it? No one in his right mind. Poets don't sneak into zoos and talk with tigers anymore even though they read Blake and startle all by striped devices. While those poems of God pout, lurking in sun-dried torn tree jungles. William Blake never saw a tiger and never fucked a lamb. You get off at 59th Street forever. The first man was an idealist, but he died. He couldn't survive the first truth, discovering that the whole world, all of it, was his. He sat down and with a little piece of string and a sharp stone invented suicide.
0: Thank you, Devar. Uh, We're gonna start in the middle. What's the reference to Blake? And I guess that's the easy part. And then why why does that help? Why does that work in that middle stanza? Who wants to talk about Blake?
3: Chris, please. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, he's clearly mentioning uh, poems from songs of innocence and songs of experience. Uh, Blake
0: yeah, uh,
3: the lamb being from innocence, and the tiger being from experience. you know but why he's bringing them up. Uh, well, I, I thought about it for for a bit, just thinking that um, there is this kind of universal aspect uh, to um, both the the innocence of the lamb and the ferocity um, the, uh, and kind of regal uh, aspect of the of the tiger and how one preys upon the other um and you know critics and scholars have talked about Blake in this way where uh there's this constant um negotiation between um uh the harsh realities of the world and the more conceptual domain of of heaven um and you know um, the, the divine and how might the divine create contradictory or, or contrary elements uh, in that that human beings are, in his case, that man um, witnesses and has to contend with. Um, so, and I think that that's an element in, in Kaufman's work throughout his uh, body of work. I think it's very consistent um, kind of philosophical questioning of, of good and evil and morality and ethics and um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know obviously with in his biography the the, the life of someone who is a, a, you know an ascetic um, essentially uh, is this kind of negotiation with those tensions so mm-hmm. I think that there's a very um, consistent through line uh, mm-hmm. in terms of his understanding or his, his uh, digesting of Blake and then being able to, uh, to to put that right back out there in his own work
0: Devorah, I want to turn to you i, I I'm so glad that Chris mentioned the way Kaufman lived his life, life spare ascetic, uh, because it's such a beautiful diss, a, a beautiful, almost friendly diss to William Blake, who's writing about experience that he never saw a tiger. I just totally love that. Anyway, what, 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 what do you want to say about this, Devorah?
1: Well, that's what I was going to say. I felt like it was very much a critique of Blake, that um, Blake is given a lot of, like Christopher was saying, you know, in terms of his whole books and meditations on, 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 you know, experience and on innocence and all of that. And Kaufman's like, you know, yeah, but none of that was real, <laughs>
0: right.
1: Right you right. know, he he doesn't have that
0: experience. He doesn't have that knowledge. He's just writing about it. Yeah. Maria, it's, um, it's, it's very charming. It's also, it's a way, it's a way of saying, you want experience? You want songs of experience? You know, read some of my poems. Uh, the tiger, this is the second time the tiger appears in that stanza. The first time is a reference to Michael McClure uh, talking to the tigers in the zoo. So you've got, one, one of us should spell that out a little bit. Uh, it's a great San Francisco cool poetry moment. And then it becomes the Blake tiger. So let's spell that out, Let, maybe Maria and then Chris.
4: Well, I can't honestly say that much about McClure, but I can certainly, through McClure, um, get to Ginsburg, well, who in a way right. is the figure who ties all of this together. Yeah. Um, he was very good friends with Kaufman. Well, reasonably good friends with Kaufman. They certainly knew each other and respected each other. And McClure, of course, was a, a San Francisco beat poet who also read with Ginsburg at the Sixth Gallery. And McClure was also good friends with Kaufman. Um, I believe there are tapes of uh, taking place at George Kaufman, the older brother's house in which McClure and Kaufman are, uh, Bob Kaufman are both guests and they're kind of shooting the breeze about Kaufman's life. I agree that it's a critique of Blake, but I think it's also a way of creating a lineage between Blake and the poets with whom, Kaufman is in current conversation.
0: Yeah, um, he, he says pe- poets don't sneak into zoos anymore as if the days of that kind of uh, as they ever did are over. But it, indeed <laughs> they did. Michael McClure in 1964 and again in 1966 sneaked into the San Francisco Zoo and started to sing to the tigers famously. So there's this recording of him in, and ghost tantras records that. And that would have been like a really signal moment. Um, so it's wonderful that the that that crazy ass thing that Michael McClure did doesn't happen anymore. So Chris, can you figure out the tone of this second stanza? Is it is he missing the days of bold avant garde? Is he tracing that cowardice back to Blake's failure to really experience what? What's the tone? What's he? What's he trying to convey about the situation for, for poets who like to live at the edge?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about his, you know, the colony and new world and the idea of strolling through it. Um, I do get the humor and I love Kaufman for his humor. Um, he speaks about um, death and uh, race um, and the, the violence of the Western world with you know a a great deal of humor and kind of lightness right on the flip side of that is a razor sharp edge which is critical of uh of you know of the west actually and so i think that in in many ways the uh reference to blake uh mcclure notwithstanding is also critical of the west and it's an interesting thing i pulled out uh a couple of different versions of of songs of innocence and songs of experience and right after the lamb in a couple of different uh uh editions is a poem called the little black boy mm-hmm. where blake addresses um racial disparity and and colonialism and he talks about it in a way that really deals with it through through the Christ metaphor through the god metaphor and the tiger and the lamb are also uh um somewhat uh uh biblically referential and so there's 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 a layered critique in that in that uh bit yeah so there's 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 a there's a humorous element that I did pick up on um I have to say because of the way that I read um Kaufman and how I spend time putting its words in my mouth I always get that um that lyrical sadness and so he's Mm -hmm. kind of like uh Mm -hmm. He's a strange kind of bardic figure where it, it is about joy, you know, in, in some ways of the joy of living and the joy of refusing so much. But it's also just looking at the loss and, um, and the difficulty of being a person in his in his skin, hence yeah. the title.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Devorah, Chris just brought up the stroman of the first stanza. So let's can we talk about that? I'm sorry, I'm so disconnected from the, well, first of all, from San Francisco, and second from the, the, um, the you know, I had to look up Stroman, is what I was saying. <laughs> and what I found was to saunter erratically, aimlessly, as if high or drunk. Um, what do we make of this? I mean, this is so Kaufman-esque. What do we make of this opening? It's quite remarkable. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's uh, emphasized for, by the film, by the film clip, because I believe he's just kind of walking around, maybe in a park, and someone's asking him to recite this poem, and it happens somewhat spontaneously. So he's actually Stroman when he performs it.
1: Well, I think a couple of things. One, I don't think this whole poem takes place in San Francisco. There's no 59th Street in San Francisco.
0: Right, absolutely. Right, about- I think that's New York. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. Okay. So I think that 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 while he might be remembering or knowing that Michael McClure snuck into zoos, he doesn't say Michael McClure. He says poets. Right. So I think he's talking about, in a way, poets squaring up. You know, this was a hip thing they did. They're not doing it now. Yes, yes. Okay. And 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 I think it's really and again, and I think that that. That that the big Fanny and Strom and Vinnie and I and I agree. I was I was looking at that and I really thought about it and uh, Christopher, because all I could think about is is he talking about somebody with a big bat, big butt, you know? Because yeah. that's the way we use language.
3: Yeah.
1: And if Kaufman was anything, yes, he was a poet, but he was a black man, <laughs> and he was very pointedly a black man, and in his poetry, in his life, everywhere. Not that he wasn't on the beach scene; that they didn't hang out in North Beach. Yada, yada, yada. But he hung out with black men too. White people don't talk about that way, maybe because they weren't there. But that's a part of his history too. So when I look at this poem, I don't think of it as a San Francisco poem. Mm. It's a Kaufman poem that references something that happened in San Francisco or maybe happened in New York zoos too. I don't know. Something that also in terms of New York and when you get off the train and what the stop is there that people get off at forever you know i feel like there's all of those layers to it you know and yeah. and, and the layer and when you're talking about deal somebody who deals big fanny and strom stroman vinny deal dealing has to do with drugs right it's not they're not dealing cards so that, um, they're not making a deal <laughs>
0: I'm glad you widened the terrain here because that makes sense. The largest colony of the new world. This is a big, this is a big continental statement. And then that marvelous line, Maria, who could have guessed it? Yeah. And we don't know quite what it is, but what we've presumably it refers to what's happened in the previous lines. And then this great line, no one in his right mind, meaning no one in his right mind would have guessed it. Can you try to, Uh, spell that out a little bit. I understand that there is a kind of reversal of the value of unreason. Unreason is actually being in your right mind in a situation like this, but can you help us out?
4: Um, Well, I think there's a kind of part of the pleasure of his work is the sort of paradoxical nature of it. Mm. So this reversal of, um, let's say, sanity and insanity, is something that he does quite a bit, who's inside, who's outside, um, who's sane, who's mad, who's in jail, who isn't in jail. Right. Um, and he's doing it here. And I also appreciate that what's left of the largest colony in the new world is a, basically a drug deal. Um, right. it's, it's really a sort of like, it's come to this kind of a, kind of a statement.
0: Who could have yeah. guessed it you're saying, I think, who could have guessed it is, who could have guessed that this is what would become yes. this large colony? Yeah. And the only person who could have guessed it is Kaufman, no one, no one who is deemed to be in his right mind. He's, he's basically, uh, Chris, telling us from the start that he's in his, you know, marginal, supposedly not in right mind position. He's actually to be trusted here. He's going to be wise about this particular colony. So I wonder if we could go to the third stanza, Chris, because that seems to be, you know, Genesis and Adam and starting over and all that stuff. Um, Can I
1: say one thing, Chris? Please. I'm I'm not trying to be rude, but I just wanted to say, I don't agree with you. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Who could have guessed it? Why is he saying I guessed it? Yeah, He's saying I'm looking at this now. Who could have guessed it then? Hmm. I don't know that he's saying I'm wise and I guessed it.
3: Yeah, the, the who is uh, I forget. The who is more general, kind of an open, um, you know, like you know, who would have thought, you know, kind of a, yeah. Yeah. almost who like a, an exclamatory uh, phrase in, in in a way, you know, who would have guessed it? Yeah. yeah, thought it
4: was uh, could possibly be he was giving credit to Big Big Fanny and uh, Stroman Vinnie that you know it's the people on the outside who. Actually, know what's going on. They know the ways in which mm. um, Fanny. their sort of furtive um, street culture is a complete mirror of the colonizing processes.
2: The first man was an idealist, but he died. He couldn't survive the first truth, discovering that the whole world, all of it was his. He sat down and with a little piece of string and a sharp stone, invented suicide.
3: This is just kind of, kind of out of left field. I love the string and a sharp stone. Oh, yeah. Um, the string reminded me immediately of stringed instruments. And buried in sharp, I got harp right away. And right. because he's a jazz guy, and he listens very closely to sound and music and meaning and how those things pair up, it would be very easy for him to play his harp and sharp and make that reference to the string and stone and, you know, the stone could be anything, you know, it could be a drum. It could also be, you know, a guitar pick. Um, it's very, you know, again, very, very interesting stuff. And I think the last part to your, to your, to answer your question, uh, uh, Al, is that it just goes to the, iso- the isolated or the lonely individual in a very complex space contemplating a kind of mortality in the face of something that was supposed to be all about new life, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The world.
0: Thank you. Uh, Devorah and Maria, let's, please stay on this thing that Chris mentioned. The There is, at least as a second meaning, this idea of music at the end. I'm very moved by the end because it seems like, it, uh, you know, the, your first feeling about inventing suicide, Devorah, is a string, it's a way to kill yourself, and and a sharp stone is a sharp object, a way to kill yourself. And And yet then I thought there's music, and that would be very sad that music that you know, a person realizing that he or she is a poet, uh, an artist, could lead to, you know, self harm. It's just very powerful the way that thing ends. So, can we talk more about the ending and, uh, and, and this first man at the beginning of the stanza? Well,
1: you know what captured me? I had to say, my, my father used to recite the third stanza from when I was a child cause he can call him with friends, So that was the, he had the book and he would, and wow. I was mystified by it. Hmm. I was just like, oh my goodness, really? And I would ask my dad about it. And, 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 and one of the things that came, it was just like, and actually I misread it when I read it, the whole world all, uh, was all his, was all his. And that here, and, and, and it's such, a. we have this incredible world, it's all yours. Mm. And what do you do? You invent suicide. Mm. You know, and I think that, that that, that um, I think earlier, Chris, you talked about the, a certain sadness, uh, you know, that's in the poems. And I think that, to me, that's what's really important there, is there's that, you know, like, you know, instead of going, oh, my goodness, look at this. Mm. Look at this incredible world. Mine, it's all mine. Look at what I can do. I can sing. I can make music. I can I- Wonder, but no, what do I do? I take a string and a sharp rock. Yes, I could make music, yeah. but what I do is I commit suicide.
0: That is so powerful. And why do you think your dad, what, why was that the stanza he would recite? Did he have anything to say about why or he just loved that, that poem?
1: Well, I think there, there is that, that sense, I mean, it was always, um, um, I was brought up in a very political household, this sense of how wonderful the planet Earth would be if uh, uh, we weren't divided, if people, let me not <laughs> go around the bush, if white people were not so busy oppressing black people and other people of color, the yeah. wonder of the world. And so that, that, that this idea that one invented the bomb you know all of these things, right? In the face of this world of wonder, and we spent a great deal of time out uh, in California. My father's from uh, New York City; he was born at Harlem Hospital. So when he came out here, we were all the time in nature. We were at Big Sur, and you know all these wonderful places in California. And so for him, it was like the world was so beautiful, and all of it was his.
2: Mm. Mm. You
1: know, so I think that he was really taken by the fact that here's this idealist that couldn't cope with their own wealth. Ah. Not money wealth,
0: true wealth. Yeah. I'm curious. um, The first truth, when I first read this poem, I thought, well, we're not going to know exactly what he means by that. But I think maybe it's the first truth is what follows. Yeah. that is that i.e. discovering that the whole world was his that's the first truth
3: the idea of dying is the very first truth you know right after it he's an idealist but he died yeah, yeah. that's the that's the first ultimate truth right there
4: yeah i mean yeah. that's that's how that's how it is
0: right
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. uh <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think it, you're right. It's the Genesis story. You know, you're 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 born to all this beauty, and uh, you discover knowledge, which is that all of this is yours. And um, the very next thing that you know, um, you you have existential angst. And I think that's an, another thing that um, I think also is very present in Kaufman's poetry is a particular inflection of The kind of ideas that were circulating in American highbrow to middlebrow popular culture around existentialism, loneliness, the word alienation moving from a Marxist term having to do with labor, and of course Kaufman was a labor organizer and a labor orator, and then the word alienation became depoliticized and that suicide is a kind of, there's an aura around it in um, existential thought, but it's also the sort of end point of a culture that doesn't deserve itself in a sense, Mm. Um, a culture that's let itself down. This is extremely layered to me, and it brings together um, kind of philosophical ideas of the time his autobiography, um, the history of, of US politics. I mean, everything is right here. And the, you know, yes, you can write. Or I was thinking writing, what do you do with a sharp stone? You write with it, you inscribe on a surface with it.
0: Oh yeah. Um, yeah. That's why Maria, when I saw he sat down, it's my yeah. favorite phrase in that stanza. He sat down meaning, you know, okay, the first man did this and that, he didn't so discovered the first truth and sat down. And essentially, Chris sat down and created, sat down and had the tools to now create. Um, that's, that's, prob- that's good, strong evidence of that reading that Maria just said, that these are the tools of creation. And then ironically, as Devorah pointed out, also the tools by which you get rid of yourself. Chris, do you want to comment further on this?
3: Uh, just a couple things that, you know, in agreement, I wrote down loneliness, existential alienation before you said it. And because it's, it's that clear. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's very clear. Um, and I thought about, I think about suicide as relief, um, that the invention of it, if you know that the end is, is a death where, uh, everything that you come to know is, is, you know, uh, you know, cast to oblivion why don't you why don't you go ahead and take the reins yourself <laughs> you know and uh and and and, and take control and do, and do that for yourself but um so those are those are two things i thought of um and, and to further both devora and maria's ideas yeah
4: i think that this is in a way this is where i go round and round and round with kaufman um and in the critical literature on him it's always this you know, well, was he a victim of U.S. racism? Yes, of course he was. Did he take matters into his own hands and recreate himself in this powerful way? Yes, he did. Um, But to what extent is his life a tragic story and to what extent is his life one of, um, you know, one of endless possibility and resilience? You know, it just, and, and most of the stuff I see written about him, um, and I have to say, I am guilty of this myself, there's sometimes a somewhat glib tendency to exalt um, the, you know, the abject situation that he found himself in, or that, you know, that his life became. He was very well loved um, and people in the community did take care of him, but there were other poets like Amiri Baraka who were outraged and who would say, look at what they did to this poet, you know. Yeah, sorry.
1: I was just going to say that the thing about it is Kaufman was in San Francisco. He was doing his thing. He had made various hookups with various people. He had uh, in North Beach, there was a community of black men and he hung out with them. And then he hung out with the poets who became the beat poets. And then he took a trip to the East Coast right. with uh, Kesey and then not, not the on the road trip, but another trip he took. And, and they turned him on to meth. He did not use drugs. He smoked weed, he drank. That made him somewhat crazy. He got to New York, they put him in Bellevue and gave him shock therapy. He was forever changed. But how he got on that road was not him, it was not self-sabotage, it was not him into drugs. He got turned out. And I think that's a part of the story that's really important. Because he didn't just get there and then people got him out of Bellevue but when you've had shock therapy, especially the way they did it then, uh, they don't get back again. They, you know, Things are taken out, things are missing. So when he returned to San Francisco, he returned with that. And what did he do? I don't know if he was on his way to becoming a Buddhist or if he was, he became a Buddhist. He contributed to building a Buddhist temple in San Francisco. That there's this other life he had I'm not sure whether or not the labor, what you said is a loss, I just don't know. Maybe so, maybe not because he, as well as he could stayed active, but it's hard. I mean, what was he arrested 56, 57 times in San Francisco? It was absurd. It was like, oh, there's Coffin on the street. Let's uh, beat him up and put him, throw him in jail.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, so, so when you're looking at this poetry, to me that that's the backstory that sometimes slips out in, corners of the poems mm. but to look at that you know i think what chris said uh, earlier about the first truth yes people died and yes what you said oh wow people die anyway and i can just jump on into it but that was not something that bob did he held on
3: for much longer i mean the evidence took for me i mean as a generation later you know the evidence is he hung on a lot longer <laughs> than he probably should have and probably really wanted to. I mean, there's a there's a perseverance. I do think. I mean, I, I was, I, and in some ways, I try to try to skirt around the issue of, of race because it's a you know it's just such a huge topic and it's hard to really ever. You could have that conversation about nearly every element of our contemporary life. Period. I mean, so it's just it's obvious, but it you know I think in this case when we look at Kaufman you have to think about him being a black man. You have to think about him being a very beautiful black man who could, you know, dated interracially, um, you know, really tried to pursue integration in a, in a, in a, very head, you know, forward progressive way, and then finds it complicated and then finds himself, um, his real self his true self rejected, which I think is hard to, to, really comprehend that a lot of times if you are a black person um, and you move into a space that is considered a you know well let's just say take it you know crazy the way that people think of it this way but the white space is the universal space so mm-hmm. if you're a black person and you try to move into black male try to move into a universal space um, you know it, it you are challenged because people want you to leave the blackness out of the experience. They want you to leave it out. And that creates a kind of psychological problem because you're only bringing part of yourself into something. And you think, you may think, especially if you're progressive as he was, that, well, I'll leave this little bit out so I can further the agenda of of black life by just leaving this little pit art so I can make room for others to come in. And by the time they get there, there'll be enough space cut for them to be, them, be themselves. It's very, very dangerous space to be. I think one of, and I'm just thinking about this as we're talking about it, particularly both Maria's mentioned, uh, you know, uh, notation of scholarship and divorce, um, kind of thinking about her dad and his, her dad reading it and communism and all of this stuff. As I think about the protagonist from uh, *The Invisible Man*, um, Ellison's *Invisible Man*, he goes through that. Like he goes into he, you know, he starts off fighting for the white woman, you know, with the with the guy in the boxing ring, another black kid, and you know, then he gets, you know, the liberals end up loving him and understanding where he's coming from, and they bring him into the Communist Party, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time it's all over, he doesn't know his fingers, his toes from his ankles. Like you know, he just he's totally lost. And so, uh, you know, in a way, the poetry is the way out. It is actually the way that's left, you know, is let's go there, you know. Yeah. This is his brilliance,
4: right? I mean, a lot of people were driven out of the labor movement and a lot of people suffered in that way, but they were not able to reinvent themselves Mm -hmm. and, you know, have a whole second, you know, completely different life. And, you know, um, and, and this is actually, I, I just want to quote my favorite Kaufman line, which is, way out, people know the way out. Right. And, uh, and yeah. there you have it. That's what you just said. So, and in fact, I was thinking in to, to sort of support this idea of a redemptive writing. I mean, I can argue it both ways because I feel both ways are true. Um, you know, with a little piece of string and a sharp stone, you can do a lot of things, but I don't really understand... I mean, you can harm yourself, but that's not really a suicide method. A little piece of string and a sharp stone, yeah, right. you know. I mean, yeah. you would need a rope, and you, you know. Yeah. Um. There's there's something so brilliant about the ambiguity of it. You know. He's,
0: I think he's telling us there. That he doesn't mean this to be a pre-elegy. This is not about himself, as Chris was talking about. He was amazingly persistent, um, living much longer than the first man. Uh, and I, so I, I, I first went into this thinking about this poem, thinking about this as kind of a self-reference, a way out. But in fact, now hearing you folks talk about this, I I realize that this is that this poem ends with something of, affirmation may be too strong a word, but something of the discovery or invention or creation of a way to express. And I love the percussion and the string together there. It's really, really positively musical at the end. Listen, I wonder if we could go around one more time and offer final thoughts, something that you had come to this conversation intending to say, but haven't had a chance yet. So it can be totally random, just a final thought. Um, Devorah do you want to start is there something you wanted to say that we haven't talked about yet?
1: No I don't think there was but I I do think that what Chris just said in terms of it's really vital in terms of the having to leave a part of himself out and then if we combine that with what you mentioned Al about the possibility of using a stone to write because as you you just said uh, Maria one can't kill oneself with string and a stone well I mean, if you're determined, you could probably kill yourself with anything. But, 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 you know, generally that one has to wonder if there isn't a somewhat implicit thing of that writing oneself and writing oneself out, which is its own kind of suicide.
0: Mm. Wow. Oh, that was great. Thank you. Uh, Maria, do you have a final thought?
1: Um, well, it just occurred
4: to me that this business of sacrifice Cutting with a sharp stone, first man, etc., brings up for me uh, Aaron, um, no, excuse me, Isaac and Abraham, which in turn refers us back to the lamb. Um, The lamb is a sacrificial creature who um, replaces the son. And there's a lot of writing in Kaufman about fathers and sons. But then the ways in which writing come to replace the animal sacrifice and singing and praise and so on. So I'm sort of seeing um, these three stanzas initially seemed to me to be very um, like fragments brought together somehow. But now I'm seeing more of a continuity with the the notion of self-sacrifice, animal sacrifice, substitution, um, and uh, sublimation with uh with writing kind of off being the final uh, creative version generative version of sacrifice
0: um so fantastic thank you chris A final thought uh
3: yeah i just want to read a poem of his that's very short um, please and it's uh, i think you've you probably you guys have probably heard this one before it's called why write about and uh written in 1967 and it goes write hung things, mad mess, zen tree joy, dad, like, you know, swung out cats hung on publicity, like, you know, sick middle-class chicks, nympho, cat eating symbols, little old boys in Monday beards, attending all the schools of self-pity, selling their right to revolution, to a piece of, like, you know, man, it's a scene, like, you know, the mother bit, genetic complications, like, man, like, man, like, like. <laughs>
4: so good. <laughs> the jazz. I mean, that's what the rhythm that I heard in that second stanza when he says, you yeah. get off the 59th street forever. That's a, a bebop rhythm. It
0: is. I can't get out of my head, uh, Chris's earlier point about the, uh, you know, very conscious, Making of sounds and 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 beats and rhythms here uh, and I think you implied that Stroman is kind of what he was doing in the writing that is to say that seemingly erratic sauntering walking i 've never i walking right i've never i 've never seen a poet do the seeming erratic sauntering in writing quite like this poem. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, or theme. like walking like on the bass, you know, with, yeah, like, like, walking on the bass. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's what we use. We use the word walking to refer yeah, exactly. to that. And then it ends with it ends with a string instrument. Dried piano. It's just fantastic. It's just amazing. Um my final thought has to do with jail poems. I've been reading um I've been reading the documents that you can get, uh s- some through scholars and some are just online and some I took screenshots from the from the uh documentary. Reading documents pertaining to some of the arrests, and uh, and then working, thinking about the, there's a couple of scholars, Smethurst is one who's been working on documenting all the left-wing connections, which are very serious, early, they're early. Um, yeah. and, and then rereading jail poems, thinking about that. And there's one jail poem, it's only two lines that I wanna read, that I've reread, I've reinterpreted based on that and based on this discussion today, It's number 34 out of the 35, written in jail in 1915. And I think, Tavar, the latest number is, latest count of arrests is 59. Okay. 59 arrests. Most of them just police coming and hitting him and taking him away. Um, So he wrote this on one of those visits. The defective on the floor mumbling was once a man who shouted across tables, yeah. Now I brought that to my students the other day and I said, well, who is that man? And they all said, oh, it's some crazy guy who's just yelling. And then I realized, no, no, that's an organizer. That man used to be a political person who shouted across tables, meaning was willing to get you into an argument about politics. And now he's the defective on the floor, defective in quotes. So Kaufman would never use that word without without irony, far from defective, mumbling. And I guess what Kaufman is saying in jail poems is we have to start learning how to listen to the mumbling because in the mumbling of this so-called defective person is some real politics. And I'm glad I'm in jail to be, not glad I'm in jail, but I, I feel lucky to be in jail to meet this ex-radical who's been beaten up. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for us to gather Uh, Something put our hands together and gather something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something Going on in the poetry world or the art world So it's recommend. It's a recommendation. Basically, Maria. Are you ready to recommend? Uh,
4: Well, this is not anything new and current but um, I was looking at this in the last couple of years and most specifically
0: um, last week can you say um, can you read the title out
4: yes it's conversations with Ogo Temelli. it's uh, about the mythology of the Dogon people of Mali and uh, although you know mediated by this French anthropologist Marcel Griol um, it's a it's a treasure of intricacy and um, integrated world cosmology mm-hmm. and uh, it's just it's a, also, if, if you're interested in the work of Nathaniel Mackey, um, he is very cognizant and conversant with the uh, Dogon cosmology yeah. and uses in, it a lot.
0: In the song of the Angambulu. In yeah. Particular. Yeah. yeah.
4: And the other thing I want to share, I'm sorry, but this is about me, um, because now I can't share it any other way other than through these Zoom meetings. This is a... Um, this is a weaving that, uh, color codes, the DNA, uh, sequence of the silkworm. So, <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> and it's very long. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, it goes,
0: where's that going to go when you're done with it?
4: Uh, well, it goes all the way through here and then it sort of starts over again. Um, it's, it was intended to be um, shown at a conference that uh, celebrated the work of a poet Anne Blondstein, who, at the time that she died, was working on a, a long poem based on the silkworm DNA sequence. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. at, but it was this is eventually going to be with her uh, collected papers in the SUNY uh, Buffalo Special Collections. Wonderful. But of course, the, co- the conference was canceled because of COVID. So this is just sitting in my,
2: sitting well, in my
0: house. Lovely. If you take yes. a photo of it, I will post it with the program notes for this podcast episode in jacket, Two. Be happy to display it.
4: Fun. Okay, photographically,
0: thank you. Or even a short video. Christopher Stackhouse, gather some paradise, please. Uh, an, an old friend of mine named Mark
3: Nichols who's a poet uh, turned nurse. He worked in finance for a while, but um, I don't know what he's doing now, but he wrote a book years ago called Cicada. And uh, I forget who published it, but Mark Nichols, um, Cicada. I've been reading it over and over again, pulling poems out of there here and there. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful book of poetry. I mean, you don't see people, uh, it's rare to read people who aren't, thinking about it from a theoretical standpoint, they're just mm-hmm. writing um, and just writing about their lives and what's happening with them. Um, and it was published years ago, I think it was published in 99 or 2000, maybe two, 2000 by Rataplax, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I would say if anyone can get their hands on that book, you should definitely get that book. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's relieving for our times, I'll say that. Um, and then I, the project I'm working on the Waylon Rudd Collection, I have one essay in it, but there's several other essays and pieces in it and I think that's something that um, is worth looking into right now, particularly because it you know it deals with an expat African American um, you know going to Russia coming back to um, the United States for a couple of years only to return for the rest of his life back to Russia. Um, He left in 1930, came back to the States in 32 and then went back to Russia in 34 and stayed. Um, And yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't seen all of the essays that are in it. I've read a couple. Um, I'm very, very interested in, in uh, finding out how other people are treating this um, through writing and through the, through the images in the book. It's a monograph of uh, propaganda uh, posters from Russia dealing with um, you know trying to convince Africans and uh, you know uh, blacks in the in the colonies of the West to come to um, to come to the to, to to the Soviet Union at the time so.
0: congratulations for being part of that book and it's coming out soon after this soon after we're talking a few
3: yeah I, I believe it's coming out uh, before the year's end if not before the year's end probably before spring so uh,
0: I, I forgot, to, uh, forgot to thank you. A few years ago, uh, I, uh, when, when John Keene visited the Kelly Writers House, we, I taught my students Seismosis, which is another book that's a little hard to find these days, and your drawings for that are just fantastic, really just beautiful, and I never had a chance to tell you that. So, Thanks. Uh, Seismosis. Devorah Major, gather some paradise, please.
1: Well, I wanted to say, since we've been talking about Kaufman, that if people haven't ever listened or haven't listened recently, they should go back and listen to some Charlie Parker and some Ray Charles, which informed their other musicians too. But so much of his work, those two are very important. And if you haven't listened in a while, it's very um, healing and sustaining. And uh, Willow Press is coming out with an anthology next year, I believe called The New Black Fire. And Black Fire was a compendium of of Black poetry put out in, you know, Chris, the 70s? I think the 70s.
3: I actually have that book. Um, Yeah, I believe it was the 70s.
1: I think it was like early though, you know. And so now they're looking at it again. So what's the New Black Fire, which I think is really exciting because I think very often there's a way we cleave ourselves from the past instead of kind of weaving into it in the arts world we might individually reference the past but you know and so i'm very excited that they're um doing you know looking at it again and
0: looking at it from where are we now fantastic great suggestions uh, my gathering paradise is the uh kind of an obvious one it's the collected poems of bob kaufman uh it's out fairly recently 2019 from city lights it's really really fantastic um and uh, i wanted to conclude by referring to the Abominist Manifesto, is one of my favorite. I think that's 1959, Bob Kaufman. And the uh, since our election is coming up, of course I want to read a few lines from Abominist Election Manifesto. Just a few of the items: one, Abominists vote against everyone by not voting for anyone. By the way, we're not re- we're not recommending that, and in fact, I'm sure Bob Kaufman <laughs> wasn't recommending that. <laughs> Um, number three, abominists demand the abolition of Oakland. (laughs) Uh, Five, abominists demand suppression of illegal milk traffic. Six, this is funny, abominists demand statehood for North Beach. Seven, the only office abominists run for is the unemployment office. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, that is all the invention of pieces of string and sharp stones we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania, the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much, so, so much to my guests, Maria Damon, Christopher Stackhouse, and Devora Major, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer. Today, Zach Cardner and to Poem Talk's editor the same amazing Zach Cardner and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, I'm going to be joined by Tracy Morris, Douglas Kearney, and Derek Bayou to talk about two pieces by BP Nickel. One is called Dada Llama and the other is called A Small Song That Is His. This is Al Filreis and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.